According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off on Wednesday. And it's it's a tough study, and, and uh, especially if you're visual, I'm visual, and a lot of times, unless you can see it visually, um, it's tough to wrap your mind around it. So I'm going to put some pictures up on the board tonight, this morning and try to uh, explain certain things. And, and, and what are some of the puzzles you deal with when you're dealing with um, word studies that often overlap? And when you're dealing with words that are not purely synonymous, but they are clearly interchangeable or they are clearly interrelated because of the way that they're connected. And so as we read here how... Jesus Christ existed in the form of God, and he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And then that description of emptied himself is expanded with these three participles. How did he empty himself? What do I mean by emptied himself? What is, what is emptied himself all about? Well, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. Uh, realize in your New American Standard Bible that that being found in appearance as a man is the first part of verse 8. In the Nestle Elan Greek text, that's actually the last part of verse 7. In the Greek text, verse 8 begins with, he humbled himself. And so it sets apart, he emptied himself in verse 7 with, he humbled himself in verse 8. And that, to me, is a better versification. That, to me, is a better, uh, if you're diagramming sentences, that's a better way to diagram the sentences. Because uh, he emptied himself as as an aorist verb, and he humbled himself as an aorist verb. And we have finite verbs there that uh, are marvelous for starting verses. So I prefer to, uh, you know, if you can just circle that number eight and move it over, draw an arrow in between man and he, and uh, you can reversify your, your English text to match up with, with the Greek text. Anyway, that's where we are. So we're looking at form, likeness, and appearance. We have three nouns there that go with the three participles. The form of a doulos, the uh, likeness of anthropoi, and the appearance as an anthropos. And so we have those terms, form, likeness, appearance, and they, they overlap. They overlap in meaning, they overlap in sense, they overlap, and so uh, how do we handle them? Are we going to put all three passages together in a, in a synonymous way, or are we going to differentiate between them in, in stages? How do we handle this verse? And uh, I'm going to give you both options this morning, and, uh, and we'll leave it at that, okay? I haven't even prayed yet, have I? So let's uh, open with a word of prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our study, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful, humble, unworthy, and uh, recipients of your, of your renewed mercies. Morning by morning, your mercies are renewed, Father. Great is thy faithfulness. We thank you for this morning and the blessing we have to assemble together. This is a day of grace. None of us were promised it. And uh, as we've learned this weekend, Father, um, our time of departure can come at any moment. Uh, and uh, so, Father, we want to number our days. We want to present before you a heart of wisdom. And on this day, 
Father, we want to be humble under the authority of your word that we might uh, be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. Father, uh, continue to feed us, continue to equip us until our work assignment is complete. I thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we're working on it, this is main point six in the uh, outline, the Kenosis Hymn providing a creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, that God the Son preexisted the virgin birth, that God the Son is God, and the Word became flesh, and so God became man. And we're going to study the distinction between hypostatic union and incarnation. Many, many people, most theologians, I'll say most, will view those as equivalent terms, that hypostatic union is equal to incarnation. And uh, we're going to paint with a finer brush here this morning, as we've done many times, just to make clear that we understand. Hypostatic union means undiminished deity, true humanity, united together in one person forever. That he has a divine nature, that he has a human nature. That's, that's only applicable to God the Son. God the Father does not have a human nature. God the Holy Spirit does not have a human nature. Uh, only one member of Trinity is in hypostatic union. Are we clear? And uh, so we understand that. Uh, incarnation is a more technical term that refers to embodiment. Refers to embodiment, see. And so embodiment requires a body. That's what carne is about in the incarnation when you talk about going carnal, that refers to your flesh. Carnal is the term for flesh. Or, you know, you go to the Mexican place and you order your carne gasada because it's, it's good, right? It's got that gravy going with it. Um, anyway, so when you think carne, you're thinking flesh. You're thinking meat. You're thinking body. And so incarnation is the embodiment when God the Son entered into a body. All right. Now, the reason why I say most people equate the two is because no one, or hardly anyone, very few people, there have been a few through the years, that have asked themselves, wait a minute, is, is the incarnation the commencement of his hypostatic union? Or does the Bible give us a different understanding of the commencement of the hypostatic union? Does his humanity have a different genesis, a different uh, origin than what we have assumed is not the manger of Bethlehem. And that's what we're going to demonstrate this morning. If you've not been a part of the Proverbs class or other classes, then this could be all brand new to you. So point six, the Kenosis hymn provides creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. That of course he existed in the form of God. He was in Morphetheu from all eternity past. And not only was he this, not only is it a statement of being, but it's a statement of existence. And it's not Amy, it's not the verb Amy, it's the verb huparko. And so we have a difference between being and existing. Okay, And so uh, he existed in the form of God. Of course, he eternally is God. That's John 1 with, with being. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. No question about being God. But now existing as God. Existing in the morphe theu. That's huge. Because when he humbles himself, he doesn't stop being God. He can never stop being God, but his existence has something new. His existence now, where he takes the, he takes, actively takes the morphe dulu. Okay? So he was in morphe theu, form of God, then he takes morphe dulu, 
the form of a bondservant. So that's the parallelism, and that's the parallelism of this song. This is a song. This is a hymn. And, of course, when you write a hymn, what do you do? You put things in lyrics, you put things in parallel, you put things in poetry. And that's what we see here. And so the contrast between Morphe Theu in verse 6 and Morphe Dulu in verse 7 is, is powerful. And we want to understand everything that's happening here. So he existed in the form of God in Morphe Theu. He preexisted as humanity. Before Abraham was born, I am. Or uh, Micah 5.2, his goings forth are from of old, from eternity. Uh, that uh, the being who is born in Bethlehem is eternal. And uh, Micah 5.2 is, is useful in that regard. All right. Did not regard equality with God a grasping thing. We talked about that and the aspects of harpazo, the verb, and harpagmos, the noun. The idea of a grabbing thing, something to attain or something to hold on to. And uh, Satan tried to attain it by grabbing it. Uh, Adam and Eve tried to attain it by grabbing it. Uh, Jesus didn't have to attain it because he already had it, but he let it go. He did not view his deity as a grasping thing. He let it go. Every perk, every privilege, every blessing, every power, every glory, every facet of wealth. Uh, when you look at uh, some of these other passages, you see, uh, though, uh, though he was rich, yet for uh, our sake he became poor. There's a lot of metaphors. There's a lot of expressions that help us understand the kenosis, not just Philippians 2. All right? So... Uh, yeah, uh, Romans 15 is helpful, 2 Corinthians is helpful, Hebrews 2 is helpful uh, for us to understand this. Uh, Jesus Christ emptied himself. Uh, I, I like to say, laid aside his privileges. To me, that communicates. To me, that theologically resonates with what he did. Didn't stop being God. You can't stop being a, a, a deity because deity is immutable. If, if uh, <laughs> By definition, if, 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 if deity is immutable, then that never ends and never stops and never changes. So kenosis, if you have a, a conclusion regarding Jesus self-emptying and you violate immunity, uh, immutability or you violate uh, any attribute of deity, then you've got an a, 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 a invalid understanding of kenosis. Okay? Uh, and so work on that. Get a better definition of kenosis that doesn't violate immutability. That does not, he can't stop being God. But he can become poor, he can uh, empty himself, he can stop exercising the facets of deity that, uh, that humans don't have uh, available to them. All right. Now the aorist active verb for emptying is followed by three participles. And these are defining what it means to empty. He emptied himself, right? He emptied himself. So it's like Pastor Bob taught a Bible class using English words, showing a, a PowerPoint slideshow, and illustrating with um, extraneous illustrations, right? And so I have one verb, Pastor Bob taught a Bible class, and I have three ings that go after that verb. Using PowerPoint, speaking English, illustrating endlessly, right? So that's what we deal with. We have a verb, and then these three participles that follow. And amazingly enough, they span the spectrum of voices, active voice, middle voice, passive voice. So you have a whole uh, participle uh, grammar lesson in, in one verse right here. 
And if you want to know the difference between an active participle, a middle participle, a passive participle, this is a great verse to look at. I don't know. I, I meant to search the other day. Uh, I don't know if there's another verse in the Bible that has all three uh, in, in any tense, right? These all happen to be aorist tense. Uh, but if there's a present participle somewhere uh, in a verse that has active, middle, and passive all at the same time, I don't know that such a thing is in the Bible anywhere. I think this passage is unique. Um, as it relates to that. So all three expressions are celebrating how the Word became flesh. Celebrating how the Word became flesh. And that's what we deal with here. So um, looking at these terms, one, two, and three, we've got morphe, homoiosis, and schema. Morphe, homoioma, Actually, I gave you two terms in uh, in point two, only because homoiosis is a single usage and seems to be uh, identical to homoioma. And then schema for point three. That's what we deal with, all right? Taking the form of a bondservant. Now, this is the one that he did in the active voice. This is the one that he accepted. This is the one that he took. Lombano is the verb to take. It's in an aorist participle, so he's the one taking he is the one taking, taking the form of a bondservant, the morphe dulu. And interestingly enough, the one that he actively takes is the one that's not anthropos. It's doulos, bondservant. Then uh, being made in the likeness of man is homoioma. Okay? And this is, think, think homo, right? We've got different homo terms. So we've got the, the same or something like, something same, with a, with a neuter plural noun, essentially, like charisma and pneuma and other neuter plural endings. Uh, but homoioma, homoiosis, these terms that speak of likeness, like Genesis 1, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. The term that's used there is homoioma in the Septuagint translation of, of Genesis 1.26. And all of the aspects of likeness that we have throughout the Old Testament, most of them, by the way, are um, prohibitions against idolatry. That you're not to craft an image, and in crafting an image, you're not to give it a likeness, a likeness of a male or a female or an animal, a creature or some kind of a thing. And so image and likeness uh, we have throughout the Old Testament in warnings against idolatry. And then the third term, uh, the one that we really ran, we ran out of time before we got there, uh, but schema is our third term, schema. And if you think schematic, right? You ever held a schematic in your hand? Um, uh, I, I've held them in my hand. I didn't know what I was looking at, but uh, schematics are drawings to represent, you know, something in engineering or whatever. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, I was off the charts low on that portion of my ASVAB test, uh, even when I was off the charts high in other portions of my ASVAB test. And so um, the, the people were highly amused. They said, boy, you're off two charts. <laughs> All right. They said, we don't know if you're a genius or an idiot. Thank you. So, um, but this is what we're dealing with, the schema, the schematic. And so schema, number 4976, it's only used twice, this one and 1 Corinthians 7.31. We can look at that quickly, it won't take too long. And it's curious to me, 
You might recall, um, let's see, this is 1 Corinthians 7, and it's in a passage on marriage and divorce and remaining single and the unmarried virgin and, and different things. And in particular, because of the intensified stage of the angelic conflict and what is the difficulty of the church age. As it says uh, in verse 26, I think then that it is good in view of the present distress. What's the present distress? Is that something local going on in Corinth? Or is that a description of the church age? Is that a description of our stewardship, the intensified stage of the angelic conflict? It is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. All right, so there you have it. And those, uh, the brethren, I say, uh, the time has been shortened, so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. So ignore your wife, pretend you're not married anymore. No, that's not what it says. I'm joking. I'm joking. We had a lot of fun with this, you remember? Or I had a lot of fun with this. Maybe, maybe the flock didn't, but um, the point is, is we're spe- we are to be, we are a heavenly people, we should be heavenly focused. We should be heavenly focused because have the mentality now that we're going to have when we get there, okay? And Chuck's gotten there, and Chuck's there now, and he's got the attitude now that all of us should have now, right here, right now on this earth. So think that way. Now, in the resurrection, we neither marry nor given in marriage. So when we get there, that's the, the mindset. And there's more too, by the way. And so um, those who weep as though they did not weep. Well, guess what? Weeping is not a feature of heaven. He wipes away every tear. Weeping is, is the sadness of this life, not the next. Uh, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Again, weeping and rejoicing, that deals with the circumstances and details of life. That details with the temporal experiences of our, of our mortal uh, uh, walk. Those who buy as though they did not possess. All of this takes us out of the human realm. The world we live in now is the world of, of uh, commerce, the world of buying and possessing, and uh, not in the uh, eternal realm. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. The fact is, we're still in this cosmos. And we do use this cosmos. But we don't make full use of this cosmos because we're not enslaved to it. We are delivered. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are uh, a spiritual people. And so, yes, we still use the world. We still eat earthly food. We still uh, work earthly jobs. We still make U.S. currency. We still spend money and and uh, we buy homes and property, and we still do all that, but it's not full use. We don't make the full use that, that those do that are sold out to this world and still, in the, and still of this world. So uh, those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the f- schema of this cosmos is passing away. The schema of this cosmos is passing away. And that's uh, an interesting use of schema. And the only other use besides the kenosis passage where it's parallel with morphe and homoeoma. All right, so 
How is the schema of this world passing away? Well, we know that this world is going to be destroyed along with its works. The earth and its works will be burned up. All right, so perhaps it's in that connection then that we understand schema, that we understand the schematic, that there's going to be, uh, all things are going to be made new, including the cosmos, including the arrangement uh, when this world is, uh, is destroyed. Because the schema of this cosmos is uh, passing away. All right, so uh, I said I would show you some pictures that are hopefully useful for us. They will also be hopefully uh, useful for you if you're uh, beginning to do your first ever word studies, if you're a Greek student, a Hebrew student, or even if you're not a Greek or Hebrew student at all, but you want to do original language word studies. The software lets you do that. Uh, but to do an original language word study, you've got to know why do they overlap that way? And what's the, what's the, the, the reality of what I'm looking at here? And so I'll bring it up and, and show you what I'm talking about. And we're just going to open up here, Philippians 2, uh, 7. 7, if I don't type it wrong. All right. We'll bring up Philippians 2, 7 and make it large enough to read. All right. And so, um, and I like to put English and Greek in, in, in parallel there in the, in the same window. Uh, that's this feature here called multiple resources. And I have them there in the same window. Um, that way, when you, when you select a word, then it's going to be highlighted. And so if, if you can't read morphine, you know, you can click it there. Um, but taking the form, if all I want to do is, is the word form, Okay, whichever one you click, if you click the Greek morphine, then the English form is going to highlight. If you click the English form, morphine is going to highlight. All right. And if you just hover over it, you hover your mouse over it at the bottom of the screen, it's going to be way too small for you to read. But popping up down here is going to be your little uh, tool tip. It's going to tell you uh, morphe is a noun accused of singular feminine, Strong's Greek, Laodicean number, and so forth. All right. So we have form that we want to look at. Keep in mind when you right-click the word, there could be several things that you're right-clicking there. And uh, if you've never used this before, then just here's a helpful hint. You have two columns that come up, a left column and a right column, okay? And they're, they're, they're kind of Hebrew, right? Right to left. Work right to left on, on these menus. So Because this one's going to change depending on what you have selected over here. All right, and so right now, instead of selecting form, I don't. I'm really worried about the English word form at the moment. I'll come back to that. I want to come down here to morphe, and when I select morphe, as soon as I select morphe there, then this menu will change, and it will change because you've got different options available to you with the lemma that you don't have available to you in uh, in English, and so this is your lemma, right? You don't have to know any Greek. You could be a Greek uh, illiterate. And you see that you have lemma there, and you have the icon, the lemma there. It looks like a recycling logo. Uh, it's, a, it's a lemma, all right? And, uh, and do a word study on, on Morphe. And you do your word study on Morphe, and there's your color wheel, all right? So here's our term. Can I make that? I can make that bigger, too. 
Is my sound on? Oh, my sound is probably muted. There's a pulpit uh, button there for pulpit audio. Morphe. There you go. Your software will talk to you. All right. Uh, Shows you three uses. Shows you some lexicons there where you can look it up. Gives you your color wheel. Here's Morphe. It's only used three times. It's translated form. All right. Mark, and we looked at these the other night. Uh, a week ago, Sunday, and again Wednesday night, we looked at these. Mark 16, 12, uh, where he appeared in a different form to the two men walking on the Emmaus Road. And then right here, verse 6 and verse 7, the form of God, the form of a bondservant. Do, uh, morphe theu and morphe dulu. And those are the only uses of morphe. you got some Septuagint uses, and that's useful, so you can look there. This was broken last week, but Logos fixed it for me. Septuagint uses, and you got your uh, four different Hebrew terms that are all rendered as uh, as morphe, including salem, to'er, uh, temunah, and tevunah. Interestingly enough, the temunah and tevunah are curious to me because of a proverb study we were doing the other day. So that's uh, that's your word study, and it's sitting right there for you. Okay. Morphe, form, got it. Now we get to likeness. Do the same thing. And I'm going to leave the other window open at the moment, that's fine. I'm going to right-click likeness. My uh, lemma there is homoyoma. I'm going to come over here and do a word study. It's going to open it up. All right. Again, you can talk to me. Homoyoma. All right. And... uh, Six uses, all right? And, and you don't have to click these. You can just hover if you want, but you can click on each one and bring it out. So there's the four times it's rendered likeness. There's the uh, one time it's rendered image. And there's the one time that it's rendered appearance. And you're thinking, ooh, appearance, that's not good because I've got a word study coming up on appearance. That's my third word is appearance. I, I've, got, I've got form and likeness and appearance in, in this Philippians text. And homoeoma is my likeness word, but it's being used for appearance somewhere else. It's being used for appearance in, in Revelation 9-7. The appearance of the locust was like horses. So um, that's going to take some work. I've got I to wrap my mind around that. There's the Septuagint uses, 37 Septuagint uses for likeness. And we'll find a lot of those are for in the image and likeness of God. And a lot of those are sons that are born to Adam, for example, in his image and in his likeness in Genesis 5. Um, and we have uh, Tebunim and uh, Tamuna. We've got, uh, again, well, you think, well, wait a minute. Tevanith? Tamuna? Didn't I just see those? Weren't those on the Septuagint wheel for Morphe? Those were on the Septuagint wheel for Morphe. Wow. (laughs) So the same Hebrew words in the Old Testament, some of them get called Morphe in the the Septuagint, and some of them get get called Hamaioma in the Septuagint, or Hamaiosis in the Septuagint. And then um, appearance. Schema. 
Again, I'm going to select schema. I'm going to do a Bible word study. Follow how this works? Easy enough. And even if, even if I don't want to read the Greek letters there for schema, it says schema right there in an English transliteration. S-C-H-E-M-A. And then... Uh, schema. Thank you. And uh, only two uses. All right, only two uses. There they are. We read them. We read 1 Corinthians 7.31 this morning and Philippians 2.8. Appearance and form. Appearance. Wait a minute. Appearance? Okay. So I got different words for appearance, different words for form, different words. Now, so I think I've just done three word studies. And I've got a word study on morphe, a word study on homeoma, a word study on schema. I probably should open up another word study on homeosis while I'm at it. Come down here to the root and I can find other, other Greek vocabulary that are of the same root as homoioma, including homoios, homoios, homologeo, when you confess and say the same thing as God, homoio, homothumadon, ex homologeo, homoioma, homoleo, homu, homos, and more. Whole string of them including right there is homoiosis. So let's go ahead and bring that up while we're at it. And we see some of the same Septuagint terms. Demoth. How about that? All right. I'll leave it over there because it's extra from these other three. Now, the reason why you want to do this, and the reason why, particularly when the bulk of our Bible study is done in English, um, the reason why sometimes it gets confusing is because you have different words that are used in an overlapping way. And so we got three different words, three different Greek terms, but two of them will be overlapped as they're rendered as form, two of them will be overlapped as they're rendered as appearance, two of them will overlap as they're rendered likeness. There could be even more overlap beyond that. Uh, and they get overlapped as far as how they translate the Hebrew expressions from the Old Testament. So when you're looking at image and likeness of God, You've got words there, and none of them are morphe. You have icon, icon and homoioma. Well, where's the icon in the kenosis passage? There is no icon in the, in the um, passage we're looking at, the kenosis passage we're looking at today. And so sometimes, once you've gone through this and you've done all these words and you've, you've recognized, this is a bigger puzzle and I'm ready to untie right now. Then, then... I think it's useful if you say, well, tell me more about this likeness, right? Likeness. How many other words are rendered likeness? So now you can actually do a word study on the English word likeness and ask yourself, wow, my Bible does a lot with likeness. In fact, look at all those Hebrew words that it translates as likeness. And look at those Greek words that it translates as likeness. There's 211 likenesses in the New Testament. 211 of them. And yet, my homeoma for likeness is only four. Wow. I got more work to do. <laughs> okay. Uh, because we've got hosts, and we've got homoyas, and we've got hosper, and we've got hutos, and we've got hose. And then look at all these little ones. That's why when we talk about this, sometimes 
a vocabulary study is not going to do what you want it to do. Sometimes you realize, you know what, this is a concept, this is a the- theological issue, this is, a, this is bigger than the words that are being used. Anyway, yeah, you got, you got the adverb host, it's like or as. Anyway, homoios, hosper, hutos. And you can bring each one of them out one by one, or you can click in the middle and it opens all of them. And it opens all of them, and then you can scroll down and you can read the 108 hosts. You can read the 44 homoioses. You can read the seven hospers, the five hutoses, five hoses, the four hamaos. That one's kind of interesting. Hamaomas, ikon. Hey, there's ikon. Remember image and likeness of God, where icon was used uh, with uh, hamaos in uh, Genesis. Uh, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So there are. There are icons in the New Testament, just not in the Kenosis passage of Philippians uh, 2, 8, 2, uh, 7 and 8. But uh, Matthew 22, when he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Okay. And then render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And we have the instance of it there. Yes, sir. Okay, this, the comment was made, this use of Logos is well beyond me. I'm going to dispute that. It is not beyond anybody. Once you see it enough time, see it a second time, see it a third time, uh, do an actual Logos class, do it yourself. Uh, now, I'm not going to start with likeness, that's too tough, right? But start with love and realize, hey, I've got an agape study and a phileo study. And then do each of those. And do, do something small. Don't do something that has all these terms. Thelo, three uses. Kata, with three uses. Uh, Likmao, with two uses. Toyutus, with two uses. Kathaper, with two uses. I mean, you get down to these two uses. And then these one uses. Single use, single use. You're like whitewashed tombs. And it's a whole unique word. Whole unique verb. Anyway, it is not beyond anybody in this congregation or any congregation. What Logos has done has taken language work and made it accessible to a non-Greek speaker, to a non-Hebrew speaker. And uh, one of my goals this year, I want to bring Morris Proctor and I want to give Logos training right here with, with Morris Proctor uh, with, with the Camp Logos that he does and just equip the whole congregation. Anyone that wants to take it can take a Camp Logos. And that's uh, pray for that. And we'll uh, be able to get that to happen. All right. So, my goal this morning was through visual uh, things to uh, help clear up some of the confusion from Wednesday night. Because it seemed like there was a lot of overlap. It seemed like, wow, we're looking at words that apply to form. We're looking at words that apply to, to likeness. We're looking at words that apply to uh, appearance. And it seems the same. And they are, I believe, the same. That the song is a threefold celebration of, uh, of the invisible becoming visible, the intangible becoming tangible, the morphe theu becoming morphe dulu. That he was in the form of God, that is spirit, God is spirit. 
can't be seen, can't be touched, and yet he took the form of a servant. That the word was made flesh. That in the incarnation, the God-man was manifest to this world in a physical, tangible way. And I think it's it's uh, the essence of what emptying himself is about. All right. So that's what we're dealing with there. Now, if I'm going to give you two conclusions here, under point four and point five. And like I said, I'm going to explain both of them. I'm going to tell you the direction I'm leaning towards, but I'm also going to show you the other side that I have not totally ruled out. What I'm leaning towards is this one. All three participles are equivalent statements. All three participles are equivalent statements. And all three phases, phrases celebrate how the Word became flesh. That's what we're talking about. That He emptied Himself. That he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, that though he was in the morphe theu, he did not regard equality with theu a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the morphe dulu, the form of a servant. All right? And so all three participles are uh, equivalent statements. All three phrases celebrate how the word became flesh, right? John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. He tabernacled among us. He tabernacled like we tabernacle. We're flesh, and yet our flesh is a tent. If this earthly tent, which is our home, is torn down, what do we have? We've got a home made without hands, a glorious home prepared for us in the heavenly places. And so Jesus tabernacled among us. The Word became flesh, and He didn't come in a resurrection body. He came in the body of our weakness. He came in the temporary body. He came in the tent, and that tent was torn down. That tent died on the cross. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. We could see. He was found in appearance as a man. Passive voice was seen. Was seen was beheld, he was observed, right? That's what happened. As soon as there was a baby boy, as soon as the, the, the birth of that baby boy, he was observed, say, found in appearance as a man. Uh, if In this interpretation, form, likeness, image, all reference Jesus' body, his flesh body, right? Colossians 2.9. <clears throat> for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. What a miracle. <laughs> what a miracle. You know, we can turn elsewhere and, and the scripture says, you know, build the biggest, most glamorous temple you can imagine and God can't fit in a temple. God doesn't live in a house made with human hands. Uh, and uh, God doesn't need to eat and all this other stuff. So there are passages that speak of that. He's the creator of the universe. The, he's outside the universe. He's beyond the universe. The whole universe can't contain him. And yet, when they were holding this baby boy <laughs> in swaddling clothes, they got, they're holding, what are they holding in their hand? The fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. That's, a, that's extraordinary. That's a miracle. 
And in Him you have been made complete. And then, uh, now some of this too, by the way, I think refers to His incarnation, but also I think we're going to discuss this when we get to Colossians. How much of this is actually fulfilled in the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all? And uh, so yeah, I believe that in full deity was in that baby boy. But I also believe that the body of Christ is more than that baby boy and more than the, the flesh of his humanity. So we've got to talk about that when we get to Colossians. Um, in any event, how about Hebrews 5? God has never had a body until the Bethlehem manger in 4 B.C. or 6 B.C. or whenever you date that uh, probably not Christmas, probably not December 25th, but whatever date you pick in 4 B.C. or 5 B.C. or 6 B.C., um, since Herod murdered the babies two years of age and younger, that, that Bethlehem manger in 6 B.C., um, he received a body. And the fullness of deity was in that body. Hebrews 5, 7. So let uh, me back up to verse 5. Christ did not glorify himself. You know, high priests don't appoint themselves high priests. And uh, no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God. So Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the beginning of the humanity of Jesus Christ by God the Father. And that's in Psalm 2. Just as he says also in another passage, not Psalm 2 and not connected to the beginning, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then notice verse 7, in the days of his flesh. So there is a day that he's begotten in verse 5, and then there are days of his flesh in verse 7. Are they connected? Are they not connected? When was he begotten? When did he receive his flesh? In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. He's in the flesh. The flesh can die. He's laid aside his privileges. He's not using divine resources. So he's going to the Father like we go to the Father in prayer. And he was heard because of his piety and although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. That's a human experience. The things we learn, he learned. We learn through suffering, he learned through suffering. And uh, unless he lays aside his privileges, he can't learn these things. Unless he lays aside his privileges and takes the form of a doulos, unless he's uh, made in the likeness of, ma- of man, unless he's found in appearance as a man, he will never suffer human suffering which is designed to teach. We see it here. And, and learning these things, being obedient, having been made perfect. I thought he was already perfect. How do I perfect perfection? Well, what do I mean by perfect? Perfect in his deity, of course. But perf- perfected in his humanity? We're all headed that way, okay? And he got there. Chuck got there. All right. Also in Proverbs, uh, 
I'm sorry, in Hebrews 10.5. Hebrews 10.5. Therefore, when He comes into the world, notice He pre-exists. He pre-exists the world because He made the world. But then at a point in time, He comes into the world. He came to His own, His own received Him not. Um, but He comes into the world, the world did not know Him. When he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And notice a body you have prepared for me is a different psalm from today I have begotten thee. What's the connection between Psalm 2, today I have begotten thee, and Psalm 40, a body you have prepared for me? It's interesting. Okay. Now with human births, of course, we can't talk about this. <laughs> In human births, a human father speaking to an offspring on the day he's begotten, on the day he's conceived, um, there's no comprehension there, there's no listening there, there's no interaction there. The, uh, the conceived one is not cognizant of being conceived on that day. And even on the birthday, do you remember your birthday, the day of your birth? Did you keep a diary? <laughs> okay. So on the day you were conceived and on the day you received your body, for most of us, that's nine months apart. Okay. Um, for Jesus, how far apart was it? Because when was he begotten? When was that coterminous with when the virgin conceived. Most people say yes, I say no. Because Proverbs 8 pinpoints the conception. And it pinpoints it at the alpha moment, the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. Okay? So we'll talk about that. <clears throat> so all three participles are equivalent statements. Then all three phrases celebrate how the Word became flesh. In this interpretation, Form, likeness, image, all reference Jesus' flesh or his body. And we have other passages as well that speak of Jesus entering into a body, a body that has prepared for me during the days of his flesh. All right. And they have no reference to his pre-incarnate begotten humanity. Pre-incarnate begotten humanity. Now, if you've never been exposed to that, you find it in Proverbs 8, Verses 22 through 31, and let's, let's turn there. And uh, what I'm going to give you here in 12 minutes is uh, a snapshot of what we took, I think, five or six weeks to work our way through. I forget exactly, several weeks when we were in Proverbs chapter 8. On Wednesday mornings, we're up to chapter 14 now, so this goes back quite a ways in our Proverbs class. And through seven and a half chapters, wisdom does a lot of speaking. And wisdom speaks with calls and invitations. And believers are exhorted to walk by wisdom. And wisdom, chachma is a feminine noun. And so wisdom is uh, spoken of as a woman. And she calls out to the young man to be hugging her and not hugging the wrong kind of woman. Okay, A lot of warnings in Hebrew, in Proverbs, about the, the strange woman that you want to stay away from and the right woman, which is wisdom. You want to be embracing God's wisdom. And so wisdom is spoken of in the feminine. And that you know, doesn't bother us any, just because it's a grammatical gender. 
and we're fine with that. Logos is a masculine gender. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. People love logos as a masculine gender in, in John and say, that's Jesus. But then they don't like Chachma in Proverbs 8, and they say, well, that can't be, that can't be Jesus. This is a girl. All right, no, it's a feminine noun. Relax, okay? It's like in Spanish, la mesa, this table. It's a feminine pulpit I'm standing behind. It, relax. All right. It's just called feminine by, as, a, as a gender of, of uh, as a grammatical gender. So, um, Proverbs 8.22. The Lord possessed me, kana, begat, begat me, acquired me, possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old so at the beginning not in the beginning at the beginning and before his works of old and then from everlasting i was established so this is a a prepositional phrase that precedes time but then crosses into time from everlasting i was established from the beginning not in the beginning so you talk about in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth or in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god here we have at the beginning and from the beginning crossing through now into time and that's why i define this as the alpha moment this is the boundary between eternity and time this is the when from eternity past to the temporal present this is the beginning of time This is the first moment. Every other moment is after this moment. It's the only, you know, every moment has before and after except this one. This one only has after. There is no before to the alpha moment. Anything before the alpha moment is eternity past. Are we following? You got that? Because guess what? At the other end of time is, is eternity future. And when time is no more, I call that the omega moment. And in the omega moment, what do we have? We have the only moment, you know, time is just a sequence of moments, and the omega moment is the only, every moment has a before and an after except for the omega moment. The omega moment has exclusively before moments, and there are no after moments for the omega moment because beyond the omega moment is eternity future, okay? So within the created dimension of time, some people like space-time, but within the created dimension of, of time, is this sequence of moments from Alpha to Omega. And that's what we see here. So, look at every single one of these childbearing terms. This chapter is full of, of uh, birthing terminology, including the possessed me in verse 22, including the establishing of verse 23, including the brought forth in verse 24. When there were no depths, I was birthed. I was brought forth. This is childbirth. It's the same Hebrew verb. Anytime a human or an animal births something, they are bringing forth what was not previously seen. So when there were no depths, I was brought forth. Here's a birth before the earth, right? Now, again, I mean, just look at this, read this, and then go read Genesis 1 and read, wow. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and uh, The Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the deep. Well, guess what? Before there were any depths, before there were any depths, I was birthed. 
when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was birthed, brought forth. And so the, the time setting on this, the birthing, the begetting time setting on this is before anything else. And that's what it says here. From the everlasting, at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. So before the creative ages, before angels, before the universe, before uh, the earth, before Adam and Eve, there is the begetting of the humanity of Jesus Christ. So he has a human nature, okay? And uh, all of these childbearing terms. Um, verse, uh, and, and then you look at what he is doing, what Yahweh is doing in his creation here. Well, uh, verse 26, while he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, and Yahweh does that. The Son, the begotten one, is celebrating what the Father has done. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary. And so you read all of this. Now you, you, have, you might have a problem with all of this if you're a New Testament church age believer and you have an understanding of John 1 and Colossians 1 and you want to dispute this and say, well, if God the Father didn't do any of that. God the Son did all of that, right? Are you with me here? Are you, are you, are you just squirming in your seats saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Why is God the Son celebrating God the Father for doing all that, that stuff? John 1 says, all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1 says he's the creator of all things, visible and invisible, right? In the heavens or on the earth. So we know it's Jesus, not the Father doing all that. Why is the Son celebrating the Father and saying the Father did this, the Father did this, and before the Father did this, 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 I was there. I was there. This is Solomon in the Proverbs giving us John 1 before John in the Gospels gave us John 1. He was in the beginning with God, and he was God. And just in case you think all these verses are wrong, they're not wrong. God the Father did create everything. He did it through the Son. Through the Son, as his agent, as his, uh, as his builder, as his carpenter, you might say. And verse 30 tells us that. I was beside him as a master workman. Oh, look at that. See, the father did everything, but he did it through the son. The son was his master workman. Not only God the son was the master workman, but the begotten God-man in hypostatic union was the master workman. How powerful is that? Not just God the son. So go back now and reread John 1. Go back now and reread Colossians 1. Go back and reread any text that you want to have God the Son as the creative agent and God the Father was the architect. I don't have any problem with that. The architect is also the builder. The architect can say, I built that house, even if he used a contractor to do it, right? Someone who just pays for it, funds it, can say, I built the house, even if they hired an architect and hired a contractor to build it. 
There's nothing wrong with saying the Father's the Creator. Many passages tell us the Father's the Creator. And many passages tell us the Son is the Creator. We don't hold those in conflict, we hold those in a beautiful harmony. The Father designed it, the Son did it. Same thing here. I was beside him as a master workman. But notice, notice it still is using child language. Using child language. And I was daily his delight. Daily his delight. You know, think of a new parent watching the child play. Think of a grandparent and the delight you take in a little child. You know, the the baby that I got to hold two weeks ago and the infant dedication we did for the, for the, um, yeah, Sarah and and Sam, right? The Irvins, little Benji. How fun was that? And, uh, and I was daily his delight playing or rejoicing always before him. That's what children do. They play. And sometimes adults forget how to rejoice. They forget how to have fun. I tell you, Chuck never forgot to have fun. Man, could Chuck laugh and the, the most jovial man I ever met in my life. Friendly and happy and laughing and wow. Most jovial guy I ever met. And uh, yeah, I tell you. And here I am. And here's Jesus now playing before him. Playing, rejoicing in the world, his earth. So again, as we stay in the childhood motif here, here is the begotten son. Here is the begotten son and he's playing with his toys. And the father is just amazed. The father loves that son. The son loves the father. And the father is handing the son all the bricks he needs and the son is putting these blocks together, right? Playing with blocks. And he created the universe. Wow. How amazing is that? Rejoicing in the the world, his earth. So not just the planet, but also the arrangement. Remember, cosmos is not real estate. Cosmos is arrangement. The planet is his earth. And having my delight in the sons of men. Whoa, that's exciting. Because that's like way, way late in the process. Way, way late in the process. We've got to have an angelic world first. We're going to have an angelic fall first. We're going to have animals first. We're going to have fish. We're going to have birds. We're going to have... And then we're going to finally have Adam and then Eve and then the procreation of the sons of men. And yet when he creates everything and he's got it all together and he says, look, Dad, isn't this cool? It is suited for humanity. We live in an anthropocentric designed universe. This world is, not only is it intelligent design, but it's designed for humanity. And Jesus Christ takes his delight, not in the archangel, not in the adversary, not in all the mighty uh, cherubim, not in all the Beneha Elohim. You would think he would have his delight in the Beneha Elohim, the sons of God. But he says, no, no. I have my delight in the sons of men. The Beneha, I think it's Adam, Adamim, could be Anoshim. I haven't looked up the Hebrew for a while. But he doesn't have his delight in the sons of God. He has his delight in the sons of man. Because guess what? It's not just God the Son that created everything. It was 
hypostatic union God-man who created everything. Already with a human nature. Already in hypostatic union. Created everything. So then, I'm a minute over, but think about this between now and next Sunday morning. We're doing something different Wednesday night. But next Sunday morning, think about this between now and then. When, when God made Adam in his image, in his likeness, does it make a difference if you recognize that God the Son is already in hypostatic union when he did that? God the Son is already in hypostatic union when he makes Adam out of the dust and creates him a living man, a living soul. Anyway, think about that between now and next Sunday. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Bless our studies, Father, as you expand our thinking. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that leads us into all things, even the deep things of God. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, fellowship time between now and the top of the hour. We'll come back at 11 o'clock for Hebrews chapter 3.